Secrets of a Serial Killer. Hello everybody, welcome back to Secrets of a Serial Killer. I'm your host, Nicholas, and today we're going to be talking about Joel Rifkin, a.k.a. Joel the Ripper, and John Norman Collins, a.k.a. the U.S. Assailant Ripper. So we're going to start off with Joel. See, Joel was born January 20th, 1959. Joel was born to parents that were way too young to take care of him, so they gave him up for adoption. Well, he ended up with two loving parents, which were named Benjamin and Gene Rifkin. Benjamin was an engineer, and Jean was a homemaker and loved the garden. Man, I bet you she had some great shit in her garden, especially cucumbers. Mm-mm-mm, I'll tear those up. They were Jews that were respected in their community. They tried to have kids for about a couple years, but it wasn't happening, so they welcomed the boy in with open arms. So three years later, they adopted a girl named Jan. In 1965, they moved to East Meadow, Long Island. They were upper middle class, but Joel was weird, shy, and an awkward child. Once he started school, he immediately got picked on. Due to his posture, they called him Joel the Turtle. It's pretty messed up. Also, he had learning disabilities. His IQ was 128. Once he got to middle school, it got worse. The bullies would actually hit the books out of his hands or steal his lunch. Some would even come up behind him and pants him in front of everybody, having boys and girls laughing at him. Oh, that's got to be traumatizing. Bullying was an everyday thing. He told his parents he didn't want to go to school, and they didn't understand. They thought he was just a bit awkward. Man, they're oblivious. Maybe he didn't tell them, or maybe he was too afraid to tell them, or maybe he did, and they just didn't take him serious. Who knows? It was so bad that he was afraid of inside and outside of school. Outside of school was worse. They would chase him home and grab his books and make him chase them. High school was worse. Joel's disabilities got so much worse. When he brought home a failing report card, his father was angry and yelled at him, calling him a failure. That is not the way to handle it. He also got bullied for wearing the same type of clothes he's been wearing since elementary school. Yeah, I actually had a guy that I went to school with. He wore the same coat every day, and people would pick on him for it. And they'd be like, dude, your fucking jacket stinks, and it's got stains where the elbows are, like the elbows are and stuff like that, but it didn't bother him. Good for him, but... Yeah, he tried so hard to fit in that he even joined the track team, but that was unsuccessful as well. The bullies would push his head into the toilet and steal his books and clothes, and instead of trying to fight the bullies, he invited them over to drink and hang out while his parents were out. They drank the free beer and still picked on him. He was supposed to go out for dinner with the girl from school. He even saved his money up as well and brought a nice camera to join the yearbook team. Somebody stole it immediately. And they pretty much bullied him for the girl situation and even made the girl feel uncomfortable as well. So I don't think he ended up going on that date. Sad. He worked hard to get the school yearbook out on time. He was happy to be a part of a team. But they didn't invite him to the yearbook wrap-up party that was held due to the completion of the book. Damn, what kind of school are you going to? They really messed up. I'm surprised he didn't, you know, you know what I mean. After high school, he enrolled in NASA Community College in Long Island. Late 1977, he had nothing really going for him. He came across the movie Frenzy by Alfred Hitchcock. The movie was based off the unidentified serial killer, Jack the Stripper. Yes, you heard that correctly. He is also a serial killer that's unidentified that was in England. I don't know if he was inspired from Jack the Ripper or what, but yeah. So he watched the movie on a loop. 
He convinced his parents to buy him a car so he could drive around just like the killer did in the movie. He skipped classes and he would go and pick up sex workers. He'd sleep with them in his car or ran down motels. He only passed a single college course. So in 1978, he enrolled into a new school in New York. But nothing changed. In 1980, he dropped out and he moved back in with his parents. He gave NASA Community College another try but failed a few more times. But, like always, he cared more about sex workers than he did about school. In 1984, he left for good. 25-year-old, he tried all different types of jobs, but nothing worked out. Believe me, I'm 25 years old and I'm struggling with jobs too, so I can relate. His attendance was bad and he was lazy. Uh, we ain't got the same reasons, buddy. He daydreamed about being a poet and a famous writer. He struggled with the writing part and it was too dark and no one would even care about what he had to say. Uh, Stephen King writes about dark books and, uh, yeah, like, a lot of his books are movies now and they're doing well, like, especially the It and The Shining, yeah, so, Joel, I think that you would have been fine, but the writing part, I understand, but y'all didn't really have the internet back then, so it's not like you could actually, like, go on Fiverr or anything like that, so I understand. He would move out of his parents' house and he would move back in several times. So in 1986, his father was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He tried to be brave and optimistic, but in February of 1987, Benjamin couldn't take it anymore. So he decided to take some barbiturates without telling anyone. He was in a coma for about four days and then passed away. Joel was more shattered that the fact that he killed himself instead of dying naturally. He spoke a heartfelt message at the funeral that brought others to tears. Eventually, the depression got the best of him, and he was spiraling out of control. He watched Frenzy again and came up with the plan. He enrolled again into a college in New York for gardening and management, and he got straight A's two semesters straight, and he even got an intern from it. August, he was arrested by a cop pretending to be a sex worker. He got released, so he was able to hide it from his mother. He decided to travel to Manhattan for his desires. When he wasn't with the sex worker, he would fantasize about killing one. It's actually a common trait in serial killers. Another intern was there, and it was a beautiful blonde girl. He was afraid to talk to her or ask her out due to his rejections that were at school. He got frustrated when she didn't pick up on the social cues. Second year, he was getting worse, and the thoughts disturbed him, but it was his only way of coping. The daydreaming overpowered him. March 1989, his mother was going out of town for business. The moment she left, he hopped into his car and went to Manhattan East Village. He picked up a sex worker by the name of Susie, which isn't her real name. Her real name was Heidi Belch. She had a drug problem and asked to stop at a few spots to get drugs before going back to his home. He didn't know if he was going to kill her or not. Her attention was on drugs instead of him and he grew frustrated. The sex ended up not being good. Susie asked Joel if they could go back out and pick up more drugs. Like, damn, girl, how many drugs do you need? Jeez, trying to overdose tonight or what? The thrill of sex workers were supposed to be, they do whatever you want. But she wasn't doing that. She was too damn distracted, and he was pissed off and was starting to have flashbacks of the girls that were in his school, from high school to college. So he just started beating her up until she, he was tired. She bit his finger hard and then stumbled to the door. He pinned her to the ground, and he was losing control of the situation, so he decided to strangle her. He was unsure about hurting women. Well, that all changed, and the rush of enjoyment hit him. The thrill of the first kill is what I call it. He rolled her up in a trash bag and scrubbed the living room floor. 
No sign of a struggle or anything, and his mom will be back in a few days. So after cleaning for a few hours, he laid down for a few more hours and went to sleep. He woke up from his nap and got back to work. He dragged her into the basement, laying her across the washer and dryer, and he dismembered her, cutting even her fingerprints off and removing the teeth. He was an organized serial killer. He placed her head on a pan can and the body parts in the trash bags, loaded the remains into his car. He disposed her head and legs in a woodland area in Hopewell, New Jersey, and he drove to Manhattan and tossed the remains into the East River. His mother didn't suspect a thing. Sunday, March 5, 1989, a golfer at a nearby golf club course found Susie's head while looking for a golf ball. Mm, ain't that fucked up. Go ahead, hit the fucking head, see how far it goes, brother. They couldn't ID her or trace her back to Joel. Once graduated college, he had a hard time landing a job outside of school. He had free time to think about killing and the urge to want to kill. He suppressed it until he couldn't anymore. Fall of 1990, his mother went out of town and he drove to Manhattan once again. After a couple hours, he picked up a woman who called herself Julie Blackbird. In his eyes, she looked a little like Madonna, so he liked her. He drove home and they spent the night together. When they woke up, he took a table leg and beat her with it, and then he strangled her to death. Bagging her up, cleaning the floor, and took her to the basement and dismembered her like he did his first victim. He learned Susie's head was found quickly, so he placed the parts into buckets and filled them with cement. Once dried, he got into the car and drove to the East River. He dumped the head and torso and then drove to Brooklyn, and then he dumped the rest. I wonder. So he dumped the head and torso into the East River, then drove to Brooklyn and dumped the rest. It worked. Nobody knew until he confessed to it years later. He was so calm and level-headed that he started his own landscaping business. Wow, suck on that again, Dad. In 1991, he was still annoyed. He had a successful business, but no friends or a girlfriend. He began to leave work early to pick up sex workers. July 13, 1991, his mother went out of town again, and once she left, he continued the same cycle. He picked up 31-year-old Barbara. She was similar in type to Susie, which was his first victim, buying drugs and then taking her back to his mother's home. When she passed out, he used the same table leg to hit her and then strangled her. He dragged her downstairs but didn't dismember her. This was tiring and time-consuming. It also disgusted him. If it disgusted you, then why'd you do it then? He wrapped her body in a plastic bag and placed her into a cardboard box, dropping the box into the Hudson River, and a few hours later, she was found. Due to her drug addiction, the coroner ruled her death as an overdose. What? How do you get strangled and then... <laughs> okay, you didn't see the dang on, you know, scars and bruises around her neck? Dumbass coroner. <laughs> wow. She wasn't identified, so she was buried in a plotter cemetery as a Jane Doe. Damn, that's messed up. He waited for months for the next kill. Due to his mother being home, his mother wasn't making any more trips. So he decided to cruise around Manhattan, and he spotted a sex worker, 22-year-old Mary Ann DeLuca. She looked wounded, and nobody cared if she disappeared. He took her to a motel, and they got it on. <laughs> And then they went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and he decided he was going to strangle her. But the weird part is, she didn't put up a fight. He asked her if she wanted to die, 
And she said yes. He told police later on when he got captured, he thought that he was doing her a favor. He didn't plan on how he would get her out of the room in daylight. So he panicked until he remembered from Frenzy that he could hide a body in a chest before the company arrives. So he went out and bought a steamer trunk and forced her into it. And he drove to Orange County at a rest stop. He didn't wipe the fingerprints off or tried to hide the trunk either. And he was getting sloppy. She wasn't found for another month and the coroner had no idea how she died. Nobody was able to confirm her identity as well, and she was buried in 1991 as a Jane Doe as well. He tried to shake the feeling by sleeping with more sex workers, but he was bored. So September 1991, he was having a bad day at work and he needed something to relax him. He went to Manhattan, picked up a sex worker, and he got it on in his car, and then he let her go. This is the first time he's actually let one of them go. No clue on what he was doing or what he even was looking for. So 3 a.m. he spotted 31-year-old Young Lee, a sex worker he had hooked up a few times with, and he was happy to see a familiar face. He asked her if she wanted to get in, and they drove to a nearby parking lot. During sex, he was having trouble performing, and she said, It's fine. It happens all the time. He felt humiliated, and he could just hear the laughter of the girls in school in his ear just ringing over and over over and over again he dismissed and didn't listen to anything she said and he began to sweat until he snapped he didn't intend to strangle her and he didn't know what happened until afterwards while he strangled her all he could hear was the laughter from the girls at school and he felt remorse because he saw her as a friend he said in an interview i thought i liked her he held off for three months until december of 1991 he picked up a woman on 46th street manhattan and took her to his car and strangled her while performing oral. It's crazy how he didn't remember her name or where he dumped her. This is the first time he used a 55-gallon oil drum to hide her body. I wonder if I have one of those. I have, like, a plastic drum that, like, sits outside. Like, I could fit a body in it. But I was like, hmm, I wonder what that's actually used for and why my dad has it. <laughs> okay. Shouldn't have said that one out loud. Mm-hmm. He got it from a recycling plant that he used to work. This was his sixth victim, and she was never found. So December 26, 1991, a day after Christmas, 28 Lorraine, she grew up in Long Island and was a popular cheerleader in high school. 28-year-old, doing good with her life. Her early 20s, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She turned to cocaine to help with her episodes, but it was expensive, so she turned to sex work at night. Her being a cheerleader reminded him of the cheerleaders at school that taunted him. He pulled over and asked for oral sex, and then he strangled her. He put her in an oil drum, dropped it into the Coney Island Creek. As it went to the bottom, he smiled to himself. The remains were found July 11, 1992 in Coney Island Creek, and it was identified on July 4, 1993. He doesn't remember how much about he doesn't remember much about Mary Hollerman or his non-identified ninth victim. Both were sex workers and he picked up late winter, early spring of 1992. His ninth victim had tattoos and actually put up a fight. Mary was also found in Coney Island. Police had no interest in looking into these killings because they were sex workers and drug addicts. Late April 1992, he went back on the prowl. He was getting cocky and he went during the daytime. 
So he saw 25-year-old Iris Sanchez. That was his next victim. She was a sex worker in an attic, and she thought Joel's timing was perfect. He offered to take her to a housing project so she could see the Manhattan skyline. She almost laughed. It's not every day someone pays for sex in a romantic setting. She agreed. He strangled her during the intercourse, and he hid her body under a dirty mattress near JFK Airport. Hey, I mean, he did take her up to the skyline, so he didn't lie about that. He picked up another victim of his, Ana Lopez, mother of three, and used sex work to support her children. She also struggled with cocaine. He killed her and put it in an oil drum as well, and dumping it somewhere along I-81 Patterson, New York. She was found by a motorcyclist the next day. Police knew she was murdered, but Joel never popped up as a suspect. His DNA wasn't in the system. His mother was about to go on another business trip, and after she left, the cycle continued. He picked up another sex worker, Violet O'Neill, or Violet O'Neill. He took her home and had sex and strangled her in his bed. Different area. He took her to the bathtub and dismembered her. Instead of taking her down to the basement, so he's evolving a little bit. If he doesn't like dismembering, then why is he doing it again? He drove around dropping her body off in different locations that were big bodies of water. Her torso came to surface, and her limbs were found in a suitcase in an abandoned parking lot. His mother didn't know a thing. He was just glad to wash his sheets for once. So his mother didn't even know he murdered somebody in his bed. She was just happy that he like took his sheets and put them in the washer and dryer for the first time. Ugh. Shows he's kind of nasty, honestly. So October 2nd, he picked up Mary Catherine Williams. She was her prom queen in high school and a cheerleader in college. Really don't give a shit. Before moving to New York to pursue a career in acting. It didn't work out, so she became a sex worker and a cokehead. They'd been on a few dates, but this one was different. She steamed not interests and dozed off in the passenger seat. See, she wasn't interested in Joel around this time. And it reminded him of the girls in high school. He attacked her while she was sleeping and he strangled her to death. And he felt good about it. So November 17th, he attacked Jenny Soto. She broke all her nails actually scratching his face and neck. He said Soto was the toughest one to kill. He didn't strike for another 15 weeks after that. His wounds healed and he went back to Manhattan after his 34th birthday. Then he saw his next victim, 28-year-old... Lee Evans. The remains were actually found May 9, 1993 in Northampton, Suffolk County, New York. So, July 24th, he picked up his next victim, Tiffany. She was from Louisiana, but came to New York to pursue her dreams of singing and dancing. Aren't we all? She got addicted to heroin and used sex work to pay for the heroin. Oof. Joe had a horrible week from his job and was draining, and his truck actually broke down so he had to use his mother's car. He put a lot of mileages on her car, making trips back to Manhattan and back to the home. Home, Manhattan. Home, Manhattan. Home, Manhattan. Manhattan, home. <laughs> Every night. So back and forth. So sex with Tiffany also sucked. So he took her to a secluded parking lot in the New York Post and strangled her. Damn, he strangled her in the New York Post parking lot? He went and grabbed a rope and tied her body up and placed her in the trunk. Once he arrived back home, it was already morning, and his mom was awake. He was supposed to bring the car back at 10.30 last night. She demanded the key so she could go grocery shopping. She got in the car, ran her errands. His mother got back in a better mood. 
He went and looked in the trunk, and the body was still there. It kind of reminds me of uh, Sean Gillis when he put the victim in the trunk, and then he drove to pick up Terry and then drove home. That's what it kind of reminds me of. So he took her to the garage. He changed. He left her body in the garage, and while he was working on his pickup truck, he just left her there. Nobody knew why he decided to do that, especially summertime, you know, because the body can get hot and decompose faster and be stinky. So why would you just leave the body out right next to you while you're working on your vehicle, knowing that your mom could come in whenever? It could be his mother's uh, presence, since he was used to cutting them up while she was gone, so her being home might have made him trapped. Or he didn't care. Either way. So June 28th, 1993, Tiffany was dismembered and loaded into the back of his truck. So he dismembered her anyways. Makes no sense. I guess he wanted to fix his truck up first. Okay, and then put her in there. Alright. He made a mistake. He took off his license plates and didn't even put him back on. What an idiot. State troopers pulled him. He was scared that he had a body in the back seat. What if they wanted to search his vehicle? He tried to lose him in a 30 mile per hour high speed chase. <laughs> okay. He tried to lose him at 30 miles per hour. Oh my god. 20 minutes later, he lost control and wrecked his truck into a utility pole in front of the courthouse. They handcuffed him to his truck and got a whiff of something gross. One of the officers flashed his light into the back seat and saw a blue tarp. He pulled back the tarp and saw Tiffany's dismembered and decomposed corpse. And then he admitted to it. They brought him in for one murder. After confessing to Tiffany's murder, he went on for eight hours confessing to all 16 other murders. No idea why he kept on talking. He would have just got charged for one murder after all. He was so open and casual about it that they thought he might be toying with them. His mother was shocked when the police actually arrived to their house with the warrant. They told her that he was being held for a low-speed car chase and is in jail for another crime. They didn't say more. She was later shocked when the news broke about her son. In his bedroom, he had an array of ideas and belongings to women. From purses, makeup, state ID, wallets, prescription pills, and more. Those were his trophies. There was also a stack of pornography and books on serial killers. Uh, I got a book right here that says serial killers. And I also got one back there, too, that my mom, uh, you know, rented from the library. So, uh, what does that say about me? <laughs> he probably read them to help with his crimes. Uh, can't relate, buddy. In the garage, they found a wheelbarrow with three ounces of blood, ser several tools that were covered in blood, and a chainsaw with flesh and blood in it. Joel was back at the station, writing names, dates, and dumping locations. I don't know why he did all that. When he went to trial, he began to act out. He hired attorneys, which were the two worst lawyers to ever argue a murder case. November of 1993, the hearing started. A couple weeks into the trial, they offered him a plea deal. If he pled guilty to the murders, he got 46 years. He just declined to offer and the battle lasted for four months. His attorneys, Soshenik, was always late to the court. Sometimes didn't even show up at all. He came unprepared. Was it unprofessional, or was it to get Joel off? By March, the judge was so annoyed, they ended the hearing and saying that there was enough evidence to convict him. The trial date was set in April as well, another one. Joel was furious when the motion was rejected and fired Soshenik. 
He kept Lawrence on the case, which was his other lawyer, trying to get reasons of temporarily insanity. The prosecutor said he got caught red-handed and is a sexual sadist that is using and abusing the mental illness situation. You're right, buddy. He's not really mentally ill. Well, he's disturbed, but he's not mentally ill. Lawrence said that Joel was a paranoid schizophrenic that lived in the Twilight Zone. They found out that he didn't have schizophrenia. <laughs> Park Dietz came up to evaluate him, which is the same guy who evaluated Jeffrey Dahmer and Arthur Shawcross. Arthur was, uh, the, was it Janice? Y'all know. Y'all can look him up. So, he said Joel was sick but not insane. He was aware of his killings, and in May 9, 1993, he pled guilty for the death of Tiffany. He got 25 years to life. He got transferred to another prison and went on trial for another two murders. He hired another lawyer and came up with this new idea that he was going to try to pull one over on the court system with adopted child disorder. <laughs> this psychologist, I can't pronounce his name, he worked with adopted children for over 25 years and a lot of them showed the same symptoms. 10% of these children became murderers. And also, Lawrence, the lawyer, said Joel's separation from his mother was so traumatic that only women that reminded him of her, he would kill. That's complete bullshit, but whatever. Just before the jury selection took place, Joel switched it to guilty and even surprised his own lawyers. The judge accepted it and sentenced him to 25 years for each murder. He got 25 years for each one, not all together, individually. Damn. If he killed 16 women, that would be 400 years altogether. But he ended up getting 203 years in prison, so I was wrong. He was out on trial for Iris Sanchez, and he didn't even put up a fight and even apologize for his actions. He said, and I quote, I'm sorry for what I've done to you and your daughters. I will go to my grave carrying the death of these women with me. Some of them were my friends and kind to me. What I've done can never be forgiven. I ask you to believe me when I tell you I never understand the part of me that did those terrible things. He was charged with nine out of the 17 murders that he committed. And that is the end of Joel Rifkin. So let's get into some secrets or some facts about Joel. He said that Frenzy actually inspired him to become a killer in the first place. He was obsessed with reading about the Green River Killer and the Janice River Killer. I think that's how you say it, which is Arthur Shawcross. So, yeah, I'm eventually do him and Gary eventually. After the second kill, he thought about having sex with the body, but found it repulsing. Wow, I didn't know he thought about that. Barber's death ruled as an overdose, and it made him feel powerful. He was actually scared to kill again due to the consequences that he would be facing. But after her, he felt like a god. He felt remorse for every kill even when he became a full-time serial killer. He wanted to stop hurting women, but the evil force wouldn't let him. He killed 14 women less than two years, some even a week from each other. That's crazy. And that is the end of Joel Rifkin's. Also... One more fact about Joel, I don't know if I said this earlier, but the bullies, one of them, actually peed on him. Like, straight up peed on him. I don't know if it was around the same time when they shoved his head into the toilet, but I think after they shoved his head into the toilet, one of the guys pissed on him. Like, bro, 
You would have pissed on me. You would have been a rat, bro. I don't care if I would have got my ass beat or what. That guy would have been over and done with. Like, I would hunt him down years later and fucking pissed on him. So, yeah. What we learned is uh, bullying is extremely bad, you guys. And it can affect you through your life. Like, these women were literally getting killed because he was having flashbacks of these girls from high school and college that used to taunt him and ignore him and act like he didn't exist. And guess what? That helped boil his anger. And then guess what? He started killing. So rule number one, don't be bullying people because you see how this outcome pretty much played out. Second of all, do not be oblivious to anything. His mother was so fucking oblivious. Like, I understand. I don't know how many groceries she got, but I always put my groceries in the trunk. So I definitely would have saw the body. And second of all, how do you not go into the damn garage? Does she not park her car in the garage? And how was he able to carry the body from, let's just say he parked the car in the driveway, all the way into the garage without the neighbors seeing? Like, that's something I'm trying to understand. Would they live in a subdivision or do they live out in the middle of nowhere? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean, I could be wrong, though, but that's just a little weird in my opinion. So... Let's get into the next story, shall we? John Norman Collins. He was actually born John Norman Chapman on June 17, 1947. He had two older siblings, which were named Jerry and Gail. After John was born, his father, Richard, abandoned the family. His mother struggled to raise the three kids on her own. She had odd jobs and even married a man that was unknown. Nobody knows what his real name was or who he was, but he was an abusive alcoholic. He spent all his time at the bar and even come home and beat on her and the kids. One time he got mad at her, with Loretta, the mother, in the car, and he grabbed the two-year-old John and threw him hard into the back seat. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know, it's not like an asshole for laughing about that, but it just reminds me of something that Eminem would say in his fucking songs. Like... <laughs> So he got into it with the man, and this random man pulled a gun on him, and he used John as a human shield. That's how big of a piece of shit this guy really is. He was using his own stepson as a shield from this guy that's pointing a gun at him. The abuse kept going on, but Loretta was saving money behind his back. So in 1951, when John was four, Loretta left the man and flew to Detroit. She met William Collins. The two married... A couple of months later, sadly, John became abusive. I mean, sadly, William became abusive. Him and Loretta would go out drinking, leaving the kids in the car for hours. <laughs> it's sad that Loretta would go after crappy people. Exhausted and ex short on money, she did everything she could to stay on William's good side and keep the relationship going. William eventually adopted the kids. John was a nervous kid and wet the bed often. Even had to wear diapers in his early school years. He had anger issues as well. He went as far as strangling a stray cat with the clothesline. He would boast to other students about it at school. In 1956, when he was nine years old, his mother Loretta left William and took a job as a waitress. It reduced John's anxiety and he became more relaxed and well-behaved. High school, he was popular and known as friendly, wholesome, young man, and straight handsome. Mondays, he attended Catholic Mass with his family. He would get good grades in school and was well-liked by his teachers. He would start small fires around his home, though. His love life was weird. He was moody, and he flipped the switch 
and he would go nuts. So he was kind of like bipolar. You just didn't know what you're going to get. John scouted a girl at school, at a school dance actually, and he quoted the Sixth Commandment to her because she was dancing a little bit too provocatively for him. Another girl called him a bondage freak because of his aggressive sexual preferences. Sweetheart, you think he's bad? Look up Dennis Rader or fucking David Parker Ray. They're 100% worse than this guy. Believe that. And there are some girls that I personally know. I have one on my Snapchat. I personally know that she's into that bondage shit. Like, she's deep into that BTSM shit. Like, they love it. There's some girls out there that love it, so... But I don't think this girl is down for it. Well, he kept up the good persona. He was also the captain of his football team and pitcher for his varsity baseball team. This dude is definitely different from Joel. He got good grades, and in 1965, he graduated. He started to attend the Eastern Michigan University. In his major education, he wanted to be a teacher. First semester went well, and he joined the Faye Dekai, which was a frat house. But once he started joining them, his grades started to slip. His professor accused him of cheating on a test, and he got in trouble with the dean. He met Andrew Emanuel, and they actually did petty crimes together. He got caught stealing money from his eternity brothers, and he got kicked out of the frat house, the Faye Dekai house. He wrote in a college English paper, and I quote, if a person wants something, he only is the deciding factor whether or not to take it, regardless of what society thinks, what is right and wrong. This mindset has been taken by so many psychopathic serial killers. He caught his pregnant sister in bed with another man who wasn't the father. He lunged at the man and beat him unconscious, then screamed at his sister and called her a whore and a tramp and he hit her until she bled. The incident was so hushed up that he never got in charged or in trouble for it at all. He wasn't close to her anymore, but he was super close to his mother. In 1966, he was still struggling with school. He had a few girlfriends, and those girls had similar stories to his high school girlfriends. He came off charming and nice and handsome, but later he became weird with his sexual desires and more. He hated girls with pierced ears. They left holes that defiled their bodies. Defile their bodies, my bad. He was disgusted at the thought of women menstruating. That is just normal, my guy. A girlfriend told him that she was on a period one time, and he left pissed off. He told her that she was disgusting, and he left her house and didn't even speak to her for a few days. Like, what the fuck, John? He grew more controlling with his girlfriends and getting mad if they got too friendly around other men. I can't get mad about that because I let my ex-girlfriend get friendly around another dude and guess what? She ended up cheating on me. So it depends on the guy and your girl. They had to walk around on eggshells when they are around John. So July 9th, 1969, 19-year-old Mary Flesher. One night she was going for a walk around her apartment complex and he drove up beside her. Why does Flesher sound like a uh, victim's name to a lot of serial killers? I feel like I've heard that name from another victim. I could be wrong. A man on the porch saw the whole thing. A young man driving a blue car pulled up next to the girl and spoke briefly. And then she just shook her head. The car pulled off but drove around twice more. Each time the pair would talk briefly and Mary refused each time. After the third time, the car drove off and Mary continued her walk. And then she walked out of the man on the porch's view. He didn't see either of them again. The next morning, her roommate reported her missing. 
Mary's parents were frantic. The police told them, have patience. It's not unusual that college kids go missing for a few days. You know, they'll just come back. They run off with their lovers. You just need to wait. Her parents insisted. She wasn't the type of person to leave town without warning, leaving all her clothes and the car at the apartment. Police didn't care. Her parents had to wait. So after 72 hours, police then put out a missing persons advisory. Her father was looking at a photo of her and had a bad feeling that she might be dead. He stared at the photo for a while that night. Police spoke to a campus security guard who saw her walking, but he didn't see the blue car. Detective Howard was signed to the case, but he couldn't find no clues. On his day off, he would walk the river to see if she was lying out there. There was a river nearby, and he just wanted to make sure that her body wasn't laying out there. So August 9th, 1967, two farm boys north of the school, well, they heard a car door slam. They were curious on why would someone be out here this early in the morning, so they decided to investigate. The car was gone, but they followed the tire tracks to an abandoned old farmhouse, and the tall grass next to their feet was her body. They had no idea what it was, so they called the police. The cops were expecting to find an old animal carcass, but instead they found Mary. She was beaten badly and stabbed 31 times. Her arm was missing, and all five of her fingers on her other hand was missing. Her feet were sawed off, and the bones in her legs were crushed, and the decomposition made it hard. They think her body had been moved three times within the two months she was missing. 20-year-old John, this was his first kill. The detectives felt bad. And one of the detectives felt really, really bad because he had a daughter that was only a year older than Mary. So he felt really, really bad when he had to face the family. So on August 7th, John watched the news. He saw the boys in his rearview mirror and they were snooping around. He was terrified that the boys would find something, tell the police, and the police might somehow lead it back to him. But a couple days went by, no police. He relaxed and he replayed the murder over and over in his mind. He felt the killer's rush. He needed to see Mary one more time. So August 10th, 1967, he showed up to the funeral home a few hours before Mary's funeral was supposed to take place. He told an employee he was a friend of the family and asked if he could see her. The employee said it would be impossible. John said, and I quote, You're saying that they can't fix her up enough so I can just get one picture of her? The employee probably felt freaked out and he said no. John left the funeral home pissed. The employee noticed that John had a blue car, and he reported it to the police, because on the news they said look out for a blue car. So, the employee couldn't actually get a clear description on John, or the make and model of the car. <laughs> you looked him dead in the fucking face, and you can't get a good description of him? What an idiot. At his apartment, he took it out on himself, saying it was stupid to risk going to the funeral home like that. He told himself, you need to be careful and keep your violent lust in check. He just used his memories and reframed from killing again. Almost a year passed and he was able to push the urge away. He took a job and was working on his grades as well. So in June of 1968, the memories of his first victim started to fade more and more. The town returned to normal and no notable murders happened after Mary's. The women felt safe to walk the streets at night again. So June 30 of 1968, 20-year-old Joan Shell was headed to a campus bus stop. She was taken into Ann Arbor to meet up with her friend. She was late and the bus left, kind of like Spongebob and Rock Bottom. She decided to hitchhike instead. Susan Colby, her roommate, actually took her to the bus stop, 
but then tried to tell her, no, you don't need to hitchhike, that's a bad idea. But she wanted to visit her friend badly. It was only a 15-minute drive. All of a sudden, the car pulls up, and she got into this red Pontiac that had three dudes in it and was disregarding her friend's warning. She promised that she would call when she'd get there. She waited for three hours and was panicking, and she finally decided to call the police. They told her to be patient and said, call them in the morning if she didn't show up. She did. They filed a police report. She explained the driver was in his 20s, handsome, six foot, wearing a green EMU shirt. Well, she was describing me until she got to the six foot part. She disappeared only a few blocks away from where Mary disappeared. Detectives noticed the similarities. She was petite, brunette, and pretty. But her father accused her boyfriend, Dale, of convincing Joan to run away with him. He was a high school dropout, and he got arrested for breaking an intern a year before, so he really wasn't a good dude. The judge agreed to drop all the charges if he enlisted into the army for three years. He went AWOL twice to visit Joan. The police, con the police contracted the army base and said that he's been absent without an official leave since June 29th. Ooh, that was a bad idea. One day before Joan went missing, Dale's family haven't heard from him either. Joan's friends didn't know much about him as well. Police gave permission to the press to run a story. Dale called her parents saying he had no idea where Joan was and begged for them to believe him. Her father asked where he was, but Dale hung up. The father was shaken up. He believed the boy but had no idea where Joan was. He called the police and told them what Dale had said. July 5, 1968, construction workers in Ann Arbor took a break and they smelt something dead. It was so bad everyone had to stop what they were doing to find that smell. They found the body of Joan Shell dumped on a nearby road. After the call from the workers, the police got another call from Dale. July 5, 1968, he turned himself in and got interrogated. Nervous and emotional, they demanded his whereabouts. They suspected him to be the killer. Dale planned on meeting with her at the friend's house. She really wanted to go over there badly. I was like, bro, she could just go over to her friend's house another time. She really doesn't have to go over there, like, right now. It's not that big of a fucking deal. But now it makes sense. A hundred percent makes sense now. Uh -huh. The friend did not tell police in order to protect Dale from punishment. They confirmed his story and told him that they found a body similar to Jones. He broke down and had to be helped out of the police station. So is he going to get, like, in trouble... Because he went AWOL? I wonder. The, the autopsy confirmed it was Joan. She was raped, beaten, and stabbed 25 times. Two to four days before July 5th. Her body was pretty much stored somewhere cool and dry prior to being dumped. They turned their attention to the construction workers, but they all had a solid alibi on the night of Joan's disappearance. John watched the news nervously, and he was so much more calm this time, and he was shocked that he was able to pull it off again. He beat her less, stabbed less, and didn't even dismember her since he didn't know how to and he needed better tools. He dumped it in a more of a public place so he wouldn't be tempted to go back. The planning made it an organized killer. He took long periods of time between his killings and not to be seen by witnesses. He's doing pretty good. September 1978, two witnesses to believe this saw a girl that matched Joan's description with the male student they thought the man was John Norman Collins. Damn. The stories were inconsistent. One was 9.30 p.m. and the other was 11.30 p.m. And they said that they were probably both mistaken. 
John was anxious when he saw the two police officers outside his door. He rehearsed his story. He seemed confused about the detective's questions, but answered them correctly, without hesitation. He never met Joan, and he was out of town the night she disappeared. He claimed he was visiting his mother in a nearby town. When they asked him about his car, he showed them his car, and also his motorcycle. See, he had a blue car and a motorcycle, and they were looking for a red Pontiac. <laughs> they asked him, but he said he didn't know anyone with the red and black Pontiac. They believed him for the most part, but had lingering doubts. He was trying to act a little bit too hard to stay cool and confident. They found out his uncle was Sergeant David Lake, a respected sergeant in the Ann Arbor Police Force. He vouched for John, and the police dismissed the lead without confirming his story. The words still linger in one of the detective's heads. I hope you catch that guy. They weren't sure if the murders were connected, or how does he know it was a guy? <laughs> he dropped the doubt thought, though, and John was more nervous than ever. To be calm and patient, he told himself. He promised himself that he was done killing. It was too risky. 21 in his senior year and graduated and become an elementary school teacher. That's the plan. What concerned him was his appetite for violence. Had to hook himself back more and more and more to keep him from going out. I say hook, it means like keeping yourself from going out. Like trying to stop himself from going out and committing another murder. If y'all don't know what that means. He kept quiet for nearly a year. So March 1969, he snapped at a friend's and family and he went out less. So March 18, 1969, 23-year-old Jane Mixer, she put a note on the student bulletin board at the school union. She needed a ride to Muskego, Muskegon, which is three hours away from the university. John replied as David Hansen and said that she needed a visit to her parents' house and tell them that she was moving to New York to marry her boyfriend. David told her that he was driving out that way anyways. So March 20th, the setup, he was involving, he actually had a 22 caliber pistol. That's what I meant by he was involving. They ended up in Muskego around the midnight, and he pulled onto the side of the road, and he demanded Jane to get out of the car, and he had her at gunpoint. He shot her twice and then strangled her with nylon stocking, and he put her body in the trunk and drove it to Denton Township. He dumped the body in a cemetery, and it was found the next morning. Her tights were lowered to her ankles, but wasn't sexually assaulted. Her legs were spread, showing her tampon, and even with the connections, no witnesses. The boyfriend didn't even ask who she was getting in the car with. So why would you... You know your girlfriend's taking a fucking ride with somebody. Why wouldn't you ask her, hey, who you riding with? <laughs> so... And also, she had a tampon in, so that she was menstruating. That means John was definitely grossed out about that. So either way, even if uh, she told the boyfriend that she was riding with the guy, he gave a fake name. Locals didn't see anything. The woman who found her said that she saw a white station wagon parked near the cemetery. No make of any, no make, or if there was anybody inside. Some teens said that they saw a station wagon as well sometime during the night, but they said it was green not white. They looked at the calendar in her room and saw David Hansen right next to the time. The address was underlined in her phone book. The address was a frat house that was a block away. 
So on March 21, 1969, the police raided the frat house. After shutting down the party, they were told David wasn't at the house. He was performing at the play at the True Blood Theater on the campus. The night before, a woman called asking for David, saying that he promised her a ride to Muskego, but was 30 minutes late. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's like M-U-S-K-E-G-O-N. The brother explained to the police that she must have the wrong David. He was performing in the play every night of that week. The story was confirmed shortly after. So David tried to pin it on some dude there. That was kind of smart, honestly. He must have been part of that frat house, and I guess he knew that boy personally. He just didn't like him or something, and he ended up using it. Ah, that's pretty smart. So, the rage was still there, and he wanted to hit something or hurt someone else. We're talking about John. He waited only three days, and he picked up a 16-year-old named Marilyn Skelters from an outside restaurant in Ann Arbor. I suck at saying these names. Skelters? I don't know. March 22, 1969, she was hitchhiking. She was a drugged out, but police actually used her time from time as an informant. When she was found, she was in a worse state than the other bodies. The investigators that had been working for 30 years on the force said it was the worst that he's ever seen. She was beaten with a weapon to the face and the chest, slit shirt on the throat, like they had a shirt around her throat, marks on her ankles and wrists from being tied up, and belt marks on her legs. Like somebody... Pretty much trying to give you a description. She had a shirt wrapped around her throat. She had like bruises on her ankles and wrists from like being tied up. And it looked like she had like marks on her legs from somebody beating her with the belt. And she was raped by a branch. Oh God. I just can't even imagine that. Ugh. They thought it was a new killer that killed her. She was ugh. she was actually arrested a month ago for selling to other high school students. Drug-related, or one of her customers got her. Her boyfriend and buyers all had alibis. They took a polygraph test, and they passed it. Thinking about polygraph tests, it's not really accurate. So, uh, you know, the boyfriend could have been a killer, and as long as he stayed calm, cool, and collective, he would have passed it. But, yeah. Adam Conover from Adam Runs Everything pretty much blew the whole polygraph thing out of the, you know, you get the truth, yeah, whatever. They made a special hotline that the public can use to call in for tips. During the week, they had 800 tips. She was spotted shopping and at a house party the day before. Callers think that her death was due to other drug dealers' retaliation. Words got around and women were too scared to go outside without a group of people. He watched the news, but he had no interest in becoming notorious at the time. John realized that the college was on high alert, so he had to pick up another high school girl because you know obviously he's gonna get caught because they're on high alert so he decided just to go pick up a high schooler on april 15th 1969 and her name was dawn bison he kidnapped her she was walking home and she was less than a mile away and john pulled up beside her he told her to stop and then he got out and he grabbed her he threw her in the trunk and went to an abandoned farmhouse in a nearby field i don't know if it's the same one or not so on April 16th, the police found her on the side of the road. Her bra pushed up, bloused down, and stabbed in the breast and genitals, and strangled with an electrical cord. Inside the farmhouse, they found pools of blood and struggle, broken glass in every room. Some clothing was missing, others were in the basement. First time they actually been to a murder scene, 
not just where the body has been dumped. They search the place, but no leads. Detectives are trying to figure out if he was a mastermind or just plain lucky. The story went national. He watched every single news thing about him, and now he knew what it felt like seeing what other killers felt when they saw their crimes make national news. His confidence grew. So April 23rd, the police officer returned to Dawn's murder for a routine inspection. Just a random police officer. When he went into the basement, there were new clothing and an earring sitting on top of the clothing. So the clothing actually belonged to Dawn, but the earring did not. The earring actually belonged to Marilyn, which was John's fourth victim. The police were pissed. They knew that they were being played with. The media ran with the story and publicly embarrassed the task force. They set up a 24-hour surveillance at the scene. Many detectives said it was a waste of time and money. So eventually the watch was canceled after several days. Two weeks after visiting the last time, John came back once again. So I bet you they regret that. They could have easily caught him on the cameras. But he laughed out loud when he saw Sheriff Doug on the news. And he said, the killer is either damn smart or damn lucky. He eventually pulled over to his side of a road short distance from the farmhouse. And he snuck to the driveway with supplies he had brought. Gasoline, a lighter, and flowers. He poured the gas all over the basement floor. And he lit the place up and he left the five flowers on the driveway for each victim he killed. Because he killed five victims at the time. One thing for sure, they all agree. There was a serial killer that was responsible for this. They interviewed every sex murderer that they could find. And on June of 1969, they cleared over 500 suspects and 100 tips that were pretty much useless. John was busy with school and work. He was stressed, but he never let his show in public. He walked female classmates home and was stroking their fear. At work, he would make the murders a common topic with female co-workers. He described the cases detail by detail. He even told details that the media didn't even fucking specifically say, like the locations and the entries. What a fucking idiot. That's what happens when you get too fucking cocky. You start blabbing. Wow, if one of these people would have said something, then it would have been a different ball game. <laughs> He said that his uncle, who was on the task force, told him. A few of his co-workers told him to stop bringing it up. Maybe the uncle thing made him not think twice about it. He apologized, and John showed signs of form of narcissism. He found a EMU student named Alice Callum. She was walking home from a party when she was taken by John to a construction site a few miles away. Her body was found in the field next morning by a group of teens. She was raped cut and stabbed many times she was also shot they found her buttons and blood at the bottom of the gravel pit where she was killed june 21st john went out of town and he took a trip with his friend andrew manuel to monterey california they rent a trailer under false names and towed it to california with john's car john Nancy. nancy they had a friendly conversation with each other and they were supposed to see each other again she mentioned John to her 17-year-old friend, Roxy Phillips. Roxy wanted to meet John just as much as Nancy wanted to see him again. He didn't meet up with Nancy. He stalked Roxy instead. The next day, John offered Roxy a ride outside the post office, and he drove her into the deep woods of California. She was found two weeks later, July 13th, at a ravine, naked with a red belt around her neck, beaten, raped, and strangled. Her personal stuff was scattered along the highway. 
By the time she was found, John was already back in Michigan. They abandoned the trailer in the woods and parted ways. So Andrew had warrants and was wanted, and so he decided to leave the state permanently. He hitchhiked to Arizona while John went back to Michigan. The people wanted a psychic to come to Michigan from Europe. He said that it cost him $5,000. A campaign started, but only 10 bucks was collected. <laughs> it's like a GoFundMe page, and only $10 were collected. Damn. When he heard the lack of the funds, he said that he waived it. If they could pay for his travel, that he would come. He's been researching the case, and he felt a strong reverberation related to the crimes. Yeah, okay, whatever you say, buddy. But he needed full cooperation of the police. But the police were not having it. They weren't in the mood to cooperate with him. But they promised to be nice. He robbed and showed his powers as he was being escorted by Bob Scarfield. Scarlifield? He told Bob that his camper had a fuel cylinder on the camper that was leaking and the propane was escaping. Bob had no idea how this random guy knew that he even had a camper. So he asked his wife to check. He was right. So he pretty much saved Bob and his wife's life. So the rest of his visit, they treated him with a skeptical behavior. He visited each scene and made several predictions. Some were accurate. Later, he expanded on press interviews. White male, under 25, born outside of the U.S. The killer rode a motorcycle. He didn't know if he was blonde or brunette. He was one of those. Last prediction, he strikes one final time. But it did little help for police. And John followed the story and he watched him going in circles. And it just made him feel good. He would actually bring up the situation to his friends, forcing himself to wait a couple weeks. So on July 19, 1969, his sergeant uncle was actually going on vacation for a week. And John volunteered to feed their dog while they were gone. He almost laughed out loud when the keys were handed over to him. John went out and bought supplies, and a neighbor saw John come home with some cleaning supplies. So July 23rd, he went into town on his motorcycle, and he visited a former girlfriend to use as an alibi. He rode around offering girls rides, but was denied a few times. He spotted Karen coming out of a wig shop. The owner said it seemed like she was having a friendly conversation with the man, Karen said that she thinks she's crazy to buy a wig and then take a ride with a stranger, but she agreed to take the ride. Three days later, police found her on the side of the road. She was beaten with the weapon, cut marks, and raped. Her underwear was shoved in her vagina, and her system was bleached and a cloth in her mouth to silence her screams. Damn. Damn, John. Ruthless, ain't you? The owner passed the information along to the police, and the clerk next door told them the make and model of John's motorcycle. A mannequin was placed where Karen was found, and the police patrolled the area. 2 a.m., July 27th, John did return to the scene. It was pouring down raining, and he accidentally snuck past the policeman in the dark. John realized that he was being tricked when he saw the mannequin, and he sprinted back to his car. The officer couldn't catch him, and he radioed for backup, but the rain interfered with his radio, and that was a fail attempt. Larry Matthewson believed that he knew who the killer was. He saw John riding his motorcycle on the 23rd, and he immediately interviewed him. John could tell that this time, something was different. Matthewson aggressively asked him about his whereabouts on the 23rd, and he tried to keep us cool. He said he was out riding his motorcycle that day, and he went to talk to a former girlfriend. So after his conversation with John, he went to go talk to the girlfriend, and she confirmed his story. 
but she gave him a photo of him, and the clerk and the store owner of the wig store pretty much identified that was him. They started surveillancing John's house on July 26th, my sister's birthday. The 29th, his uncle actually returned home. They informed Lake that his nephew was a suspect in the murders. He felt the evidence was concerning, but didn't want to jump to conclusions. He knew about his childhood, and he had a soft spot for John. Lake's, wa- Lake's wife actually said that she found some weird paint spots in the basement. Hmm. Couldn't find some of the uh, cleaning supplies either. So not only there was paint spots in the basement, some of the cleaning supplies were missing. Didn't he go out and buy cleaning supplies? So why did he have to use theirs? So I don't understand. Okay. So he went down to the basement to see, and he could tell that some of the furniture was moved around. He carefully scraped the paint away from the few of the spots on the floor, and underneath it looked like bloodstains. He reported his findings to the department, and in the following day, forensic examiners came out to check it out. But two officers went to John's house to question him some more, and he dropped his persona. He said the employees were mistaken. He swore he never met Karen or ever come near the wig shop. They asked him to come to the station to do a polygraph test, and he refused. The officers that confronted him, they were new, and they had little experience in homicide. They were briefed on the situation and asked to stake out John's apartment. Several hours go by, and he comes home, and they interrogate him even more. So they interrogated him at his uncle's house and then turned around and interrogated him at his own house. Mm. They revealed all the evidence they had against him. When they left, he was in a full-blown state of panic. He knew that they were watching him. He collected all the evidence from his room and thrown him away. But before he threw away, he actually put him in a box. And Arnold, who is pretty much John's roommate, saw John leaving with a large cardboard box. He saw a shoe, cloth, purse, but that's all that he could see in the box. He couldn't see the other things. John told him that he was throwing some things away out from his room. He returned several hours later. The cops were keeping an eye out on his apartment, but they failed to follow John, so the box was never found. Back in the basement, it was actually polish, not blood. But they actually found eight other smaller, uh, nine other blood stains throughout the house. I don't know why I'm butchering this so fucking hard. The blood that was on the floor was type A blood, and it was the same as Karen's. The washer and dryer actually had small fibers of human hair. Lake said that they often cut their kids' hair in the basement, and the discovery of this was sickening to him. The hairs were confirmed to be Karen's because the hairs on the washer matched the hairs that were on Karen's body around her, you know, vaginal area, if you know what I mean. July 30th, 1969, John was arrested. He was interrogated and they told him that the evidence that they found against him in the basement. He was upset at first, but then he became calm all of a sudden, saying that he was innocent. Motherfucker's gotta be bipolar, I'm telling y'all. The employees came into the station and they pointed out John in the police lineup. Nothing in his vehicles were found, and the roommate mentioned the box, but they could never find it. The day John was arrested, the California Police Department called the Michigan Police Department, and Nancy had told them that they met a man named John from Michigan a day before Roxy's murder. A bystander identified that man to be John as well. California saw a man named John being arrested for the murders in Michigan, and it all matched up perfectly. He actually told on himself, 
Two days later, Michigan detectives went to California to discuss the case. The trailer was found several miles from where the body was found. The trailer was wiped of fingerprints and pretty clean for something that was abandoned. Why didn't they just take it back to the people instead of just, like, abandoning it? You know what I'm saying? That makes no sense. They agreed that there was a link. She was on her period. She looked like all the other victims. And the same things happened to her when she got killed. Andrew Manuel was picked up in Arizona by FBI and they were questioning him for his involvement. He took a polygraph test and he passed. Well, California, the killing that he did there was put on hold. John stayed calm and even claimed that he was innocent. After the evidence was shown, he just continued to say he was innocent. No confession. They only had other evidence to go on. They focused on Karen's murder since it was the only physical evidence that they had. The other Feverneys wanted justice, but they didn't have that at all. I mean, I don't think those other families are ever going to get justice. John took a polygraph test, and the results were sealed. No one knows the results. John's lawyer said to his mother, I would go for an insanity plea deal. She said John was innocent and fired her lawyer and set up her home to find a new lawyer. So she like just set up her home. Oh my goodness. That was dumb. Why would you put your home up for sale just to try to get him a new lawyer? That's dumb. So August 1970, he went to trial and pled not guilty. The case went on for months, mostly just the witnesses and the basement situation. Well, John got life in prison and he maintained his innocence. He called the case a travesty of justice. California wanted to indict him, but John's lawyer dragged it out for years. They decided to drop it since he's already spending life in prison. What else are they going to give him? Like, damn. To this day, John never confessed. So that's the end of the John Norman Collins. His story's kind of boring, and I butchered the fuck out of it, honestly. <laughs> so the facts, excuse me, about John is that he was actually born in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, just like that psychic said, he was born from outside the U.S. Another thing is, he said that he was either brunette or blonde, so he got it. And also, he drove a motorcycle. That fucker's good, man. Wow. Also, in John's interviews, he would be calm until you tell him no. This dude has to be bipolar. There's no fucking way he would, like, switch a bitch slip like that. I just don't get it. I don't get it. And it shows his, like, him being Catholic is like coming out a little bit by the way that he told the girl at the school dance about the sixth commandment because she was dancing provocative. I get that, but you know, it's a little weird. Also, I looked up John's picture and his victims. None of them are attractive. I don't know where the fuck they're getting that at. Another thing that I'm trying to figure out, who was in the Pontiac with him and how was he able to, you know, pick up that girl Without those guys snitching on him. You know what I'm saying? Like, whose Pontiac was it? Was it Andrew's Pontiac? Was it somebody else's? Because, like, Andrew and him took his car when they went to California. So I don't think Andrew has a car. So who the fuck drives a red Pontiac is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, they said three dudes drove a red Pontiac. And I guess John was the one driving. So who was the other two dudes? And why weren't they questioned? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I like how he tried to blame it on one of the frat boys at the house. I don't know if David is the one that got him kicked out. Or is he the one that told the other guys, hey, John's been stealing from me. And then he still got kicked out. So I don't know if, 
you know, John had some type of hatred towards David Hansen, and that's why he used his name to try to frame him. Also, him wanting to go back and just, like, relive the kill, a lot of serial killers really don't do that. I mean, I heard Ted Bundy talk about it when they were trying to figure out who, you know, the Green River killer was, but Gary Ridgway never went back to the body, but, like, I don't know if he dumped the body off and then that's when the guy on the road was talking to him or did he went back. But he didn't go back to the body. So John is like the only person, serial killer-wise, that I have read up on so far that's gone back to the body multiple times and would put like his life on it. Another thing, him going to the funeral home, that was a little bit creepy. Talking about how he wanted the photo of her. Like, what are you going to do, jack off to it? That's what I'm trying to figure out, dude. Like, you're creepy as hell. So... I don't know. John's just a creepy individual, honestly. So There ain't really much else I want to say about John or Joel. I feel bad for Joel because, you know, he just seemed like he could have turned his life around and been a good guy. But, honestly, he just didn't. He just went on the serial killer route. And I don't feel too bad for him. He deserved to be put in life in prison. But I'm glad that he actually, like, apologized to the victims regardless if he's sincere or not. But I feel like he is. Especially that he blabbed. He didn't like blab to be cocky. He was just like blabbing to just be honest. So, yeah, what we learned today is check your trunk. Make sure that you know your fucking house, like the back of your hand. Make sure you walk through your fucking house, okay? Don't be oblivious like Joel's mom. Also, if you know that this person might be a suspect and you really feel it in your gut, don't go against your gut. Always go with your gut. Uh, next thing, police need to get their shit together because it seems like they could get these killers a lot earlier if they actually got their shit together. So, yeah, police dropped the ball a lot. It seems like in all these stories, the police are dropping the ball. So, I love you guys. Y'all stay safe, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Peace.